What up, what up, what up, everybody? Welcome back to Today's the Day with Zach Anderson. Let's get into it. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Today's the Day with Zach Anderson. What up, what up, what up? Um, welcome to Today's the Day. All right, what's up, everybody? Um, welcome to Today's the Day. Much loved, everybody. Today's the day. Thank you guys for tuning in as always. I wanted to jump on super quick and let you guys know. Um, I'm extremely excited to announce that we finally have the top 10 journals live. They're on todaysthedayshop.com. Make sure you go and get yours. These things are perfect. We got them to the T exactly how we want them. It took longer than we were hoping, but they're amazing. I can't wait for you guys to go and implement these practices and develop these habits that have completely changed my life. So go and check out the journals, go and get yours today. Um, and I appreciate you guys. Much love. What up, what up, what up, everybody? Welcome back to Today's the Day with Zach Anderson and Dr. Dave. Mr. <laughs> Dave, Mr. Dave Hunter, I'm stoked to have you, dude. Thank you for making it out here. I appreciate you. Zach, I know there, there's busy. no way I could have said no to this. You and I have way too much history. And I know. We'll, we'll get into that in a minute, but Zach and I have some history. Which is going to be fun. I'm excited for that. Before that, though, so uh, before every episode we dive in, just so everyone knows kind of who I'm talking to, I go through, I'll, I'll read a little bio, and then we'll go through your whole story and kind of touch on every point of this bio. But I was texting Jill last night for bio your wife. Um, I love Jill and she gave me a bio and then there's a funny part of this that I want to, <laughs> I want to touch on, she, but real she quick, she didn't show me what she sent you. So which this is, is all a surprise. So and that's what I prefer. So she said a whole bunch of mushy stuff, how much she loves you. You're the best, blah, blah, blah. But the true, bio that true, I got out true. of it, the bio that I got out of it, you grew up in San Jose. You're the fifth of eight kids, which I actually did not know. You got married at 22 and you lived on a thousand dollar Volkswagen pop-up bus, which I actually knew, but I didn't know you bought that from wedding gifts that you returned and money from <laughs> a grandparent from your wedding. Um, you started as an apartment True. manager and you started in construction, right? You, True. You graduated in film. Um, and then since then, kind of where your, your life's gone since then, you've produced over 20 movies, LDS movies, Nitro Circus, which everyone knows, Hallmark Films. And then even a film that was featured in the Sundance Film Festival, which is way cool. Um, you've raced Baja for the last decade plus. Right now, you have seven kids. Right now, yeah. There you go. You could have more, maybe. <laughs> Three grandkids, right? Yep. Um, and then, so then she said in your bio, she's like, oh, yeah, he started in, in building homes, decided he wanted to be on the flip side of that, investing and owning and all of that. Told me when you finished your first project. And I just texted a follow-up question. I'm like, so how many doors would you say he's built and owns? And she literally, Jill responds, she just said thousands, dot, 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 dot. And I'm like, okay, perfect. That's So now you own thousands, dot, 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 dot of doors. And the myth grows. I love it. Exactly. I'm like, that's amazing. That's like, she has no clue. She yeah. just hears what Dave says. Dave, Half and, my kids think I'm a landscaper. Which so, is perfect. Yeah. That's how it should be. Um, so a lot of fun things to kind of unpack. But real quick, before we get into, and then our history, just kind of going back for us, like I your kids are some of my favorite people on the planet, all of them like really, really close with Anna, really close with Tommy. And then your younger kids as well. I got close with just by hanging around. Jill is the sweetest lady I've ever met. Your wife is amazing. And then me and you just hanging around your office. I've kind of like mooched off of your information. I come sit in your office and I just kind of hang out whenever I'm there. And I've gotten some of like the most impactful I guess I would say like just examples, just hanging around you. Like you're just an example where I'm like, that's, that's a dude I want to be like in a lot of ways, which is a big reason for having you on here. And then we obviously worked together when I was not good enough to be on the golf team and you were the coach. <laughs> I tried out and they said, sorry, you don't make the cut, but you can be the manager. <laughs> so me and you spent a lot of time in golf carts, rolling around, hanging out, handing out treats. treats. That was our job. Yep. We'd hand out the little PB and J's, the little pre-made ones, the Uncrustables. That was, that was the gig. No, it's, it, that's one of my favorite. Zach stories. This was 10 years ago, at least, but we're driving around. Zach's probably 15 years old. And my beautiful <laughs> daughter, who I love more than life itself, is probably 17. Who I do as well, by the way. Yeah. And you we're driving around <laughs> handing out treats. And Zach goes, hey, Dave. And I'm like, what? He's like, to clear the air, to make sure there's no awkwardness in this, uh, in our relationship. <laughs> You got to know that I made out with Anna. And I was like, what, you little freak? It was, <laughs> and he was 15 and my daughter was 17 and he weighed 72 pounds and was yeah. just this beanpole. And my I daughter, I thought, was this model. And I'm just like, I, Zach is she, coming into the chicken, into the, the, the wolf is coming into the chicken house. <laughs> and she, to this day, one of my favorite people ever, the coolest. Yeah. There's no, at least on my side, nothing weird. I freaking love Anna. Like, 
married now with twins, living life. And that didn't crushing. affect us at all. About two minutes later, we're out handing out treats and all was well. But. And then you told that story at our banquet in front of my bishop and my parents. <laughs> so thank you for that. That was perfect. That, that put me in my spot. Um, but no, me and Dave go back and I'm super excited to kind of chop it up and also hear more about your story because some of this was foreign to me. I knew little bits and pieces that you always tell, tell, but let's rewind all the way back. So you grew up in San Jose. Yep. Fifth of eight kids. I actually didn't know that. I didn't know there were so many kids in your family. And I haven't met many of your siblings, actually, which is surprising. Yeah, the siblings are kind of scattered all around the world. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, growing up in San Jose had just a super great childhood. Uh, we grew up, I, I can compare poor stories with anybody and usually beat them. I mean, my poor stories were awesome. And, you know, <laughs> we'll have Thanksgiving dinners now. And my, my, my dad's since passed, but my mom, she'll go into a different room and the siblings will sit around and people start crying and, you know, oh, I hated going to school because my shoes always had holes in them. And I, we never had socks. And I mean, it, it was very, for some of the siblings, it was very traumatic to grow up as poor as we did, but I loved it because I was always out hustling. And I was like, dude, there's no way I can be poor. And the, <laughs> the, the, the experience came, it manifested itself probably when I was 12 or 13 years old. And back in the day, San Jose had these dollar theaters and for $1, you could go see them two features on a Saturday all the buddies are going to go see, amazing. you know, go to the dollar theater and see some, some movies on a Saturday. And I was like, dad, I need a dollar. We're going to the movies. And my dad looked at me like I had horns growing out of my head. He's like, you want me to just give you a dollar? I'm like, yeah, dad, like, man, I'll give me a dollar. We're going to the movies, bro. And he just looked at me like I was crazy. Like, yeah, if you want a dollar, you should go earn a dollar. And that was really a, that was a seminal moment of my life. I was like, you know what? If you're ever going to have something or do something, if you're going to sit around and depend on other people and wait for other people and look at other people and hope that a gold nugget falls off a table somewhere, it's going to be a long, hard life. And that was something that I realized when I was a young kid, that if, if I wanted things, if I wanted back then it was Reebok aerobic shoes with a Velcro strap around the top and you'd peg your jeans and wear your white or black Reebok aerobic shoes. But you know, <laughs> we were, we were a Keds family or a kangaroo family. We were a Sears family. We weren't like a high end Reebok aerobic shoe family. And then Jordans came out, you know, the original black, red, and white Jordans that everybody wanted. And they were like 70 bucks. So if I wanted a pair of the original Jordans, it was, you go found 70 bucks. Yeah. And so I got very motivated as a young person to go figure that stuff out because I hated, I hated not having a dollar to go to the movies. Did you pull that from your, so you're fifth of eight. So yeah. you're, you have a lot of older siblings. You have four older yeah. siblings, right? So did you pull that from your older siblings or were you like the one where you're like, dude, I'm not doing this shit where we don't have anything. I'm just going to go figure it out. Exactly. And, and out of eight siblings, there's eight different personalities. And some people in the family were totally fine just to sit in the couch and not have anything. And some were very motivated. And so, yeah, I probably looked at some of my motivated siblings and yeah, went and got motivated, but we, I mean, I was in San Jose and I was LDS growing up in San Jose. And, and this is a bummer because my, it was actually my grandfather that started early morning seminary in LA and it spread <laughs> throughout the world. So perfect. I was, yeah, no, it wasn't perfect, but that started at 6am and I had a paper out all four years of high school before seminary. So I'd have to wake up at four 30 Monday through Sunday. I mean, seven days a week to go deliver the San Jose Mercury news. And so I, you know, you'd wake up at four 30, go get your papers done, go to starting at what age, starting at 14 through high school, through high school. That's awesome. That yeah. is so dope. And then every summer, me and my buddy, Mike beams, we had a lawn mowing business and we'd get about 20 lawns every summer and you'd get 20 bucks a lawn. And so you'd make 400 bucks a week just doing lawns. Plus my paper out and is always in cash. Yeah. So I always had, you know, like a drug dealer. I always had just my roll of cash with a rubber band around it. And I always had my big old roll in my pocket. I love that. I love that. So I have a question for you on that. Like, and I don't want to derail you too much from just kind of going through your story, but would you say when you kind of clicked and you decided, okay, like I'm going to go make my money, I'm going to do my thing. There's one of two reasons for that. Either number one, you were scared of being poor or you were excited to be rich. Which one do you think was more apparent for you? Did you want to avoid? That is probably is probably the latter. Honestly, I probably really just that. I mean, the American dream was alive and well with me when I was a kid. Yeah, and I wanted to go see what I could do with just my mind and my hard work. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So then rolling rolling from there, you kind of grew up through high school. You did your own thing. You hustled. You made your money. You went on a mission, correct? Yep. Okay. And what was that? Where did you go? Where did you? So serve? I went to Hamburg, Germany, which. 
for me, uh, my mom, she made us do these uh, brain tests when we were young because I think we were all stupid kids. And one of the things that came back very apparent is learning languages was not one of my aptitudes. That was not, you know, in my wheelhouse. And I got sent to Germany, which for me was a really hard language. I mean, after 22 months sitting in church, I still didn't know what was going on. And, you know, <laughs> I just still handing out high fives and smiling. Oh, that's but, I, awesome. but the mission was a huge experience for me as far as it, it, that's because everybody, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you're, I don't care what anybody says. All you really are is a glorified salesman. That's all you really are. Yeah. And I don't care what you're doing. If you're in tech, if you're in door to door, if you're anything, you're just selling yourself and you're selling whatever's going on. So I got it on my mission. And for the first year, we just followed the white handbook. We were perfectly obedient. We did all the things just perfect. And in the first year in Germany, we taught one discussion. So after that first year teaching one discussion, I was like, I know that the plan is inspired and it's supposed to be from the Lord, but the second year, I, let's just try it a little different. And what I learned in that second year is that nobody will listen to you. And as a door-to-door sales guy, you guys have to establish that relationship really quick in that first 30 seconds. But when you're walking around the streets of Germany and you just walk up to people and ask what they think of God, Hey, they don't say hi to each other. So, I mean, already saying hi to somebody, that's a big deal. But asking them what they think about God or the meaning of life, that's so far over the top that they would just look at you like you were crazy. Like, why'd you even approach me? And you looked crazy because you're in a black suit with a black tie and a black name tag. And, and, and <laughs> so what so was your different approach going into the different approach year? is the only way anybody's ever going to listen to us if we have a relationship and a relationship of trust. And that's something that they kind of taught you, you know, in your training, but you can't establish a, a you know, a relationship of trust in two seconds, asking somebody what they think of God. That's just too much. So second year of my mission, we started becoming genuine friends with people. You know, we'd either go play basketball with them or we would go get their families and go do an activity or we'd get a family and go to do a picnic or we'd do whatever it was to have that relationship with somebody before you started, to, because then they became curious. Like you guys seem like you're happy or you seem like you're this, or you seem like you're that. And it opened up so many doors just yeah. by having that relationship and having people actually genuinely like you or we genuinely like them. And it was always genuine. And then the second year of mission, we baptized almost 50 people in Germany, which is like record crazy. setting. That record setting. I mean, ever since Parley Pre Proud, I don't think there's been another Mormon missionary in Europe that's baptized that many people. And it was only because we had relationships. Yeah. And I still have relationships with those people to this day. Yeah. Which is crazy. And that that was the that for me was the the game changing moment on my mission was figuring out you had to really have true relationships or else people just didn't care. Well, I would, I would even go to the, that's so cool. And I would even go to the extent of saying, not only was that a game changing moment in your mission, you like, you are one of the best at that period. Like in general, you are one of the best at connecting with people and developing a relationship before there's any type of transaction occurring or anything like that. Even to the point where you, you'll go and go out of your way to create a relationship with someone like me back in high school where I'm like this, like literally a 70 pound beam pole with hair down past my nipples. I look like a total chick, like making out with my daughter, making out with your daughter, doing my thing, having fun. Like I was a total (laughs) punk, but like you like not, not took me under your wing, but made me feel like we were like homies. Like I feel like I've been friends with you for almost literally, well, it's been a decade now. Yeah. And I I hope you know that that was super genuine. Yeah. Which is, that was genuine. I mean, I, I really have probably a better rapport with younger people than with people my age, which is a superpower. And I guess my question for you in all of that and explain that, like, my question is like, do you think you developed that on your mission? You realize the value of relationships to me where I sit now, like with my career and everything that's happened, like my currency is relationships. That's like, that's what matters at the end of the day. I, I've kind of seen people lose a lot of money, make a lot of money, like go and achieve crazy things, achieve nothing, be total bums. But the happiest people I know have the best relationships. That's something I see super clearly. And for me, I've developed that or I'm trying to develop that over years of work. I feel like that's one thing you've had since I've met you. Did yeah, you that, learn that on your mission? Do you feel like, is that where you no, learned it? I learned that I, when I was five years old, I had no problem talking to adults. I mean, relationships have always been the most important thing in my entire life. I mm-hmm. mean, my relationships and and, you know, I know a lot of people and I know, you know, the top of the food groups all the way to the very, you know, to the guys that are, that are off the wagon I'm and I'm carrying them around Spain. I mean, I know, I know a, a gamut of people and I just, I love people. Yeah. 
I love that. So, so and not as people as an object or as people as a stepping stone or people as an end to a means. I just I actually like people for liking people, regardless yeah. if they're going to help me in something or if they have something to offer. That 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 usually doesn't weigh into the equation, which is it's super apparent. Just so you know, and I, I like I know a lot of people who know you too. Not only do I know you, and I have my opinion. I know a lot of people who know you, and that's one thing everybody says about you. Not only you, Jill too. Jill is the sweetest, like nicest, kindest, yep. and your kids. I, I, I talk to my kids all the kids. time. Like you guys realize how lucky you are to have the mom you had. I mean, I don't think Jill's ever once raised her voice, and we have seven like crazy kids. <laughs> yeah, she has it, and she has you. Yeah, but they're and all she has but you. because of Jill. They all turned out super sweet and super good. Like they are genuinely good people. Yeah, and that's and you know we'll probably get into that a little bit more. We'll 100%. talk about success and things like that, but that's for sure my crowning achievement. A crowning achievement was marrying Jill. Yeah. So, second, so second achievement, having these kids that Jill raised and turned out well. And now you have a little grandkids that are yes. cute as can be. Yeah. I love it. So, so on that, like rolling into that, you served your mission, you went and dominated, you have had those pivotal experiences, which a lot of people do on their mission coming home from your mission by 22, you were married. Yeah. Right. Which means that's like a year after you go home from your mission, yeah. somewhere in that span. How did that play out? And then my favorite part of your story that I know is right after you were married. And I've heard this story a million times, but I want to hear it like in depth about your, your situation right after you guys got married. So, right. You know, we were 22 years old. I, when we got married, we got some gifts, we got a little cash. So we took all the money, uh, bought a Volkswagen bus. We were in San Jose, drove it up to Utah. Didn't have a job. Didn't know what we were going to do. I get, I was, I actually wasn't in BYU. I, I got kicked out of BYU my freshman year. We accidentally lit some kid on fire, which is a long story. And that was the end of my BYU career for a moment. So I got home, uh, was going, I was enrolled at UVU, but I didn't have a job. Um, so for 30 days, we lived in the bus in the rain tree, which is an apartment complex in Provo. We lived in the rain tree parking lot and my buddy, one of my mission companions would let us shower in his apartment every day. And after about a month, he was like, Dave, your wife can't shower here anymore. Like my roommates are freaked out. Like we're going to get kicked out of BYU. Like we can't have a girl in here showering every day. I'm like... <laughs> So they booted us out of the Rain Tree parking lot, found a job, and I was working full time and going to UVU. I had to go to UVU for a year, my year of repentance, and then got back into BYU and went to BYU Film School. And that took me 10 years to get through film school because I started a development company and we started developing stuff all over campus, all over Provo, then moved it up to Rexburg and had a full-fledged development company going by the time I got done with film school. Which is crazy. On and I want to dive into that, but on the, that 30 day period where you're living in your bus, like this story cracks me up every time, but the craziest part is I've never heard you or Jill like complain about it. You guys like laugh about it and light up every time you talk about it. We, what was the vibe when you guys were like, were you like, oh, I've got to get a freaking job and get out of this bus. Or were you like just living it up? We were just living it up. <laughs> and I mean, it was, it was, you know, the old bumper sticker. Hey, if the van is rocking, don't come knocking. And it was just a riot to spend that first you know, a little time of our lives in this, in this pop-up Volkswagen bus. And we loved it. It was our little home, had a little kitchen in it and it was, it was a riot. That's so rad. How do you think that's affected the rest of like, cause you're like, we're going to dive into your family and everything like that. But like, how do you think that's affected the way you raise your kids, the way your guys' marriage has been like just life starting out your adult life like that has got to be so key. If you've been around us long enough, you'll know that we say it a lot, but it is, it is what it is. That's, that's kind of been our philosophy. We don't get wound up about anything. I mean, there's nothing. Kids wreck cars, things break, kids break bones. I mean, unless it's death or permanent impairment, nobody gets really wound up around our house about pretty much anything. <laughs> uh, and that's That, I think, I, I look at some parents and I think, why do you have kids? Like, they abuse these children. Like, they're always yelling at them and getting angry at them for every last thing they do. And you're like, these are kids. Kids are... I was about to say dumb, but that'd probably offend a lot of people. <laughs> kids, but, but, are but kids are crazy. Kids are wild, I mean, yeah. they're crazy. And if you're always trying to put your thumb on them, all that ever happens in those situations is your kid rebels because that was my exact experience. I mean, I came from a really fanatic Mormon household and it was my only outlet to be an individual was to be different. Yeah. And, and that's what happens when you try to put your thumb on kids. Yeah. And so we didn't, you know, we, tried to teach them correct principles. We tried to teach them between right and wrong. Tried to teach them. I mean, our family saying was be good, be nice, be kind. That was every single day. If you ask any of our kids what was said, what was on the fridge, it was always be good, be nice, be kind. Yeah. That was 
how we lived our lives. Yeah. And everything else is kind of just bonuses. I mean, it really was a very conscientious goal of Jill and I is that we were going to raise good, nice, unentitled kids. Yeah, which I think you guys have done a phenomenal job at. And like your kids are some of my best friends ever. I love them. They're awesome. Um, so then then moving on, as you're going through film school and you're running like your whole your whole business, you're running your business and getting through film school. That's why it took you 10 years. Was that fully occupying your time? Like you were consistently was, on job sites planning. Woke up at 530 every single morning. The contractor, his name was Dave, would come pick me up in his red truck at six. We'd go to Hart's. And you could get three hot dogs and a big old giant thermos of Mountain Dew for, well, the three hot dogs were 99 cents. And then I think your drink was a buck. So for two bucks at 6 a.m., you would eat three hot dogs and 64 ounces of Mountain Dew, go out to the job site, and I'd work till four. And then my classes would start at five, and I'd go from five to 10. And then it's just rinse, wash, repeat. That was, I mean, that's what happened for 10 years. That is crazy. And then did you start making films prior to graduating? Or no, was it? No. So you done all that after. Yeah. And there's so many, so many tangents we go down, but I was, I was Mastercraft's first sponsored wakeboarder in Utah. And I started professionally wakeboarding in 94. So that was also thrown on top of all of this stuff too, that we were, I mean, I was doing a whole event schedule with wakeboarding back 30 years ago. How did you balance everything? And what, like, was Jill's role just like, ultra support, figuring out like ultra support. Sure. And we started having kids. So that was, and once the kids started, that was the end of that. I mean, then it was just, she was full-time kids. And yeah. And I was, I was truly, I was 25 hours a day for 15 years. That's amazing. And it shows too. So then since then you've gone and you, you you've gone through, you have 20 films, including Hallmark Nitro Circus is the biggest one. The one that I'm most familiar with all the LDS films that you had done. And then which film did they, did you have featured in the Sundance Film Festival? Which was that? So it was, there was a guy in film school. His name was Jared Hess. He did Napoleon Dynamite, Nacho Libre, but we were great, great friends. So he came up with this idea and it's, it's really kind of funny because I mean, I don't know how the film turned out. I mean, it was good enough to be one of the premier films at Sundance and Lionsgate bought it, but it was about a biblical archeologist who is faking all of his finds to build people's faith. And we just thought that was a funny concept. And we'd found an article and it was actually there. It actually was very, very, very loosely based off of a article that we'd found about this archeologist who is faking all of his finds to build people's faith. And we just thought just that's it's hilarious. It's gotta be the funniest thing ever that you'll deceive people to build faith. I thought that was, I thought that was interesting. That's amazing. And but it was with a great cast. It was with a guy named Sam Rockwell who won an Academy award for three billboards. It was a guy named Danny McBride, who, if you guys know who that is, you are bad people because, but he's a, he's the funniest dude on the planet. And a guy named Jermaine Clement, who was in flight of the Concords. And if, Anybody knows these shows. I mean, it was, I can die a happy man having done that film because that was my very number one dream cast in the world. That's so I mean, those, those to me, I thought were the funniest human beings to ever walk the earth. And I got them all in a film. And what, what was your, your role in that? Like when you're, when you're doing those films, are you there on set every day? Every day. Out? Yeah. I'm, I'm the producer and the producer is a guy that is in charge of the entire thing. The producer is the guy that finds the script, hires the director, gets the actors, puts up the whole production. The producers really, that's the, that's the producers, the, the lot of work that, yeah, it sounds like a lot of work. And you may have just answered this and saying that was like your dream cast. What was your favorite film that you worked on? Like I'm, I'm willing to bet well, it's between two, but I'm curious on what you would so say. So number one was probably singles ward. The first film we ever did, because really? that was the first film. That was the one. I that, remember that. I mean, movie and too. it wasn't, <laughs> and you know, it was a very, it was a genre breaking film. Nobody had ever done a Mormon comedy, blah, blah, blah. But to the fact that we actually two friends got together and went out, we didn't have the money to do it, went and found the money, got, I mean, put this whole big thing together and to get it off the ground. That was, I mean, that was, that was the culmination of all the dream. That's was that. so cool. And then over the years, not that it ever got old, but you know, producing so many films, some of them became jobs, but singles award that will stand as an experience in nitro circus. That will be an experience. Cause that was a couple of years and we went all around the world and we were with the craziest action sports athletes in the world. And that's kind of my thing. Yeah. And we are big time motorcycle family and yeah. we're outdoor guys and blah, blah. So to go out and spend all these years with the top, top, top guys in the world. I mean, you, you can never be anything but inspired when you're hanging out with the top of, 
if it's the top tiddlywink player in the world, if it's the top whatever, but to be with the number one guy in the world at anything, yeah, it's that's a special thing. What was so that Nitro Circus is one that's always fascinated me. And every time I go to your office, I see all of your all of your movie posters hanging up, your Nitro Circus pieces and stuff like that. And then we've talked a little bit about it, but I I've always been curious of those couple years you spent with the Nitro Circus guys. And this is honestly just for personal ent- yeah. entertainment, so I apologize, but I'm having a blast. <laughs> What was like your favorite, like when someone asks about it, what's the story that pops in your head where you're like, oh dude, this was insanity. So that, so we went to Panama and we found these two buildings that were 63 stories tall. So that's, I don't think there's a building in Salt Lake that's 63 stories tall. I think the top, I mean, I think the church office building is probably 35 stories. So these are big buildings. Yeah. And we found two towers that were twin towers and they had about a hundred foot gap between them. And we thought it'd be a good idea to build a ramp. And push people down on big wheels and see if they could clear this gap. And we didn't have safety nets, no parachutes, nothing. <laughs> Shut up. So, what do you mean, no parachutes? Like, if they miss, they just if, fall. If they hit the side of the wall, that was it. 63 stories to their deaths. I mean, it was <laughs> so my friend. On a big wheel. On a big wheel. <laughs> and we'd done these big wheels before because we had this live tour that went around the world. And it's still actually that tour still goes around the world. It's a big capital cities tour called the Nitro Circus, but it's a live show. And one time we were pushing a guy down on a big wheel and the rear wheel fell off. We actually had big wheel mechanics on set. Like they were specifically there to build big wheels, but the guy's going down the ramp and the wheel fell off. So of course everybody talks about that story right before we pushed the first guy. Like remember the wheel fell off and people were like, uh, but shut up. We were 63 stories up. Me and my friend from San Jose, a guy named Mike Hackett, we built the ramps with this guy named Ron and he wasn't part of the crew. He was just a hired hand to help us build stuff. And he is a fully tatted out, swore like a sailor. He's a professional BMX guy, but we built the ramps. When you're shooting 3D, we had these huge 3D rigs and we had helicopters and we had all this stuff going. So we're about to shoot this. So all the helicopters go up, all the 3D rigs turn on. And I guess it's probably $10,000 a minute to have these things rolling. Mm -hmm. And everybody is too scared to hit this thing now. So they looked at this Ron kid and they said, Ron, you're the guy that helped build this ramp you have to hit it. And he was like, me? And they're like, you. And so he's like, he finally, they go to him into it and he agrees to it, but he gets up on the stand, gets off his bike and is a bike that he's going to do it on his bike first. Cause he's a professional BMX guy. And he gets on his knees and again, helicopters floating hundred people up on the roofs. All the rigs are filming, blah, blah, blah. He gets on his knees and he prays for five minutes in dead silence, like literally on his knees, head bowed, praying. And this is not a Christian. And this guy is just praying, praying, praying. And at that point I couldn't watch it anymore. I was like, dude, we are going to send this kid down this ramp. He's going to come up short and somebody's going to have to call this kid's mom that he bounced off the side of a building. (laughs) So I actually, I started looking at my shoes and I was just like, we have gone too far this time, blah, blah, blah. After the guy's prayer, he didn't think about it. He stood up, got on his bike and dropped down the ramp and so overshot the entire, cause he didn't put brakes, nothing. He just went full speed. He was not undershooting it. No, un- not He's undershooting like, it. And no we shot. had a bunch of cardboard boxes set up against the wall that we didn't think would ever come into play. And he actually landed in there. probably 40 feet past the, the I mean, he was not going to come up short. <laughs> Bro. The fact that you, so didn't- we couldn't, I couldn't watch it. It was just, it was too much. I was like, dude, and we'd already really seriously hurt a bunch of people. And I was just like, this is getting, we're trying to entertain 12 year old boys and we're going to start killing people. The fact that you didn't have that thought until he was saying a prayer is kind of yeah. concerning the fact well, that we were all so excited. And then we're like, this guy's not as excited as we are. <laughs> See, that's insanity. That's crazy. And that's in the film. Is that's that in, in the, the film? film? Yeah. That's ridiculous. Did people do it on big wheels? Then we started pushing people on big wheels. Then yeah. Then it just got out of hand. And everyone then, it got out of hand and then everybody's doing it. And then we start backflipping mountain bikes and all sorts of things. So many things are making sense now. Cause you are like a send it kind of guy. Anytime I've been anywhere with you. Yeah. I used to be a lot. Now that I'm 53, my sendy sendy days are getting a little less, but <laughs> that's incredible. That's sickening. Okay. So you, so you did the, was that, what was your last film you did? Uh, the last film we did was probably Don Verdeen. And that was, I mean, it seems like it was yesterday, but it's really coming up like on five years that we did that. So it's, it's, and it's not that I'm completely totally out of the movie business. We actually have some shows that are coming up right now that we're kind of preparing for, but no way, but I didn't know that. Yeah. But we are, 
life kind of just, I mean, seven kids, grandkids, all the stuff we do in racing and everything else. It's now it's kind of yeah picking, picking your, where you're going to go spend your time. Exactly. So that was the biggest thing on that. That was the biggest thing when I was reading through this and everything you've done. And then when I talk to you and I see what you do in like a business sense and I see what you do for fun and I see how much time you spend with your family and I see all like everything that you do. I'm like, dude, I don't know how you go and like categorize your time into these buckets and fulfill. Like at what point did you start doing the Baja stuff? So that that's that, that to me, like in a lot of people's podcasts and a lot of the culture in Utah County, not even Utah County. I mean, Utah particularly, because I was born and raised in San Jose. I didn't even know half my neighbors. I mean, you didn't know, yeah. you know, people, the garage door would open up, people would go in, garage door would shut. And that was your relationship with them. You didn't know these people. So maybe it is unique that everybody knows everybody's business, but a lot of these, I see a lot of these things where everything is geared towards people becoming rich or geared towards, you know, come do this seminar, come listen to this or come and we'll teach you how to be rich. That we have, we have this, we have the Dalai Lamas. He has like 15 tenants in his life that he lives by. And one of the tenants that the Dalai Lama, and this is, it's hanging by my bathroom. So I get to read the tenants every single day. But the, for me, the most profound one is every single success you have in your life, there's something that you had to give up to get that success. Mm. And that can be talk about your family. Well, to have a great family and that's your success. Well, you had to give up something else to have that great family. I mean, having it all, that's, that's really a very hard thing to do. So if you're going to be a super rich guy and be super successful, what did you have to give up to get there? And that's something that's always been kind of my guiding principle in my life is I really, the number one thing I wanted in my life was I wanted a success, a successful family and not that, you know, we were never been on the cover of magazine. I've never been nominated for dad of the year, but we put a ton of effort into that. And that success has come at the cost of other successes in my life, whether professionally or personal or selfish or racing goals or business goals. Yeah. That was my number one success. And that's what I really wanted to put my focus on. And everything else was kind of byproducts, but I always weigh that like to have that success in my life. What am I going to be willing to give up to get there? And it's, and I've come to the conclusion that I'm not going to work a lot more extra hours so that I can afford some material thing that will never happen. I will work extra hours so that my family can go have an experience so mm. that we can go be together in the desert. So we can go have a weekend at the races so we can, you know, so my kids can fulfill their dreams. I mean, what everything that we do is geared towards that, that successful part of my life. And, and, yeah. and we give up a lot to do that. I mean, a guy I know you had him on your podcast, Todd Peterson always laughed like Dave, you would have been the richest guy in the state of Utah. And he says it dead seriously. If you would have just, concentrated and just gone in all in, you know, a hundred hours a week for 30 years. And I was like, Todd, I was, that, that just wasn't, I wasn't willing to do that, to be yeah. the richest guy of this or that or anything else. That, that was never my fundamental yeah. goal. And I wasn't willing to give up a lot to become that. Which makes, that makes so much, gosh, that's so good. I've actually, I want to say I've heard that from Dalai Lama, but I don't think I've ever heard it in a way that resonated like that. That's really cool. That, that makes a lot of sense, kind of how you did things and how you approach decision-making and everything like that. Because that's one thing I've always noticed. Your kids look at you as like best friend material yeah. and your kids, friends, me included, look at you as like, you're like one of the homies. Like I would, if I was having like a fire pit hangout, like bonfire, Dr. Dave's on the list to give a ring. No, when when Jill's talking about like Lake Powell, because we have a place down at Powell, it's who we invite. And I said, I don't care who we just tell the kids to all invite a bunch of friends. Cause that for me is way more fun than hanging out with stuffy adults. <laughs> I like the, I like the general, I'm just, cause I still consider myself a 10 year old boy. So I love it, which it shows and it's, it's fun. So, so then on that, then as life has kind of gone through, I guess a few questions for you. One thing I've always noticed about you is you you've approached everything extremely abundantly and very lighthearted. When you say things don't phase you um, and like things don't really get you worked up, it shows in other ways. Like I, I it, when we were when we hung out a bunch golfing, I would bring like problems like I would just tell you problems I was having that seemed like the end of the world. And you would like kind of joke about them, which at first offended me until I understood <laughs> how your brain worked. I was like, why is this dude laughing at something that's such a big deal to me? And then it's like, oh, dude, because it's not that big of a deal. 
And I'm just approaching things with the wrong, like so scared, like such a scarcity mindset. Where did you develop like this? I, I guess you've mentioned a couple of times, but where do you feel like you really went and what were some experiences that shaped that? Like you really don't let things work you up and you talk about other people's problems. Like they're not problems in a good way. Like you help put the right perspective on problems. But probably it, and I can't diminish my background. My, we grew up so poor that there was nothing. There was, I mean, one Christmas, this is not a made up story. We got a, we got an orange in the bottom of our stocking and that was Christmas for the year. The good years, we got to go to the wooden horse, which was my mom's friend owned this little toy store. And it would be like, okay, Santa might spend $10 on a gift for you guys. So you'd spend six hours in this stupid toy store trying to find that perfect $10 gift. And you didn't want a $7 gift because then you're leaving something on the table. You wanted to find that one for $9.99 and whatever. And then you get it, you'll put it up on the counter. Then mom would go make you wait in the car while Santa was figuring things out. So those are the good years. You'd get a $10 gift. But knowing that I survived that and not just survived it, but thrived it. There's, I mean, again, outside of cancer and complete, you know, crippling injuries, life goes on. There's not, there's, I, I've, I know by no for a fact that, you know, somehow we're going to eat tomorrow and somehow we're not going to be sleeping out in the rain Yeah, and everything else above that is bonus. Yeah. And that's all, that's all gravy. That's yeah. That's a really cool outlook. So I would say. You were lucky and it may not have seemed like it in the moment, but now you obviously realize how lucky you were to grow up the way you did. A lot of people are not growing up in those circumstances. And a lot of people are growing up in totally different world circumstances than you grew up in, right? Like the world is just so different now from how it was big time. You've had to go and father seven kids, right? So you, you, you've kind of witnessed it firsthand. And if it's anything like any other adult or parent I've talked to, it's kind of mind boggling and crazy. What advice would you have? for someone that's kind of coming into their adult life that's growing up, that's now in this totally different world environment to go and make sure they not have the most success in life. Cause I don't think that's what is top priority to you, but go and have the most fulfilled life, whatever that is to them, whether that be successful family, whatever it may be, what, what advice would you have to somebody coming into their adult life in this world that we live in now? Again, money is always just the byproduct. I, the only advice I give you is find something that you're just completely passionate about. And that's the old cliche that, you know, if you're doing what you love, you never have to work a day in your life. And for me, I don't, I don't care if my kids make a lot of money, no money. If they're school, it doesn't, none of that matters to me at all. I want them to find their passion, whatever their passion is burning in their heart, whether it's making statues out of matchsticks. I mean, I don't care what it is, as long as they are passionate, passionate, passionate about it. And, the, I, and then if you could taste any success in your passion, you're, you're going to be truly be happy. Yeah. That makes, yeah, that makes perfect and sense. So we, I mean, we have a kid in music school now and most parents, like I just, I just was over the Berkeley school of music in Spain and I guest taught for a couple of days. And part of it was I did about six hours of one-on-one mentoring with people and to hear how many of these kids, and this is the top rock and roll school in the world. There's no second. It's the number one. Mm-hmm. So these are obviously all pretty driven kids. And it was amazing to hear how many of these kids were like, my parents obviously wanted me to be a doctor or take over the family business or become an engineer. And so coming to music school is a huge departure. And I'm kind of the black sheep of the family and blah, blah. I was like, when Tommy's like, dad, I want to go to music school. I was like, let's go. Are you in? I mean, I, I couldn't, I was, you're passionate about it, Tommy. Yeah, dad. And this is something you can do the rest of your life. Yeah, dad. Can you figure out how to make a living? I think I can. Then Tommy, we are 100% all in. No ifs, no ands, no buts. We want our kids to live their passionate, passionate dreams and not yeah. make them go be doctors. And there's a great need for doctors. And some of my best homies in this entire world are doctors, but that, that track is not for everybody. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's really, really good advice. That's super insightful. Um, on that too, you, you have gotten to go and father your kids and you've probably seen some things that are like massive challenges or red flags in being a young adult and growing up and with how the world is like, what would you avoid? I know it's kind of a different question rather than what advice you have. What would you avoid going into your adult life? So the, the, and this may sound crazy and it probably is because it's your generation. I'm talking, I'm offending your entire generation, but I honestly think that social media is going to ruin this whole world. We only had one kid do social media that was really into it. And you could tell that it actually really truly affected them like to, to the point of tears and 
oh my gosh, these are my four best friends and they're doing this and this is what, and to the point where like, after you look at social media, do you feel a lot better or do you feel worse? I always feel worse. So then why do you do it? Why do you do something that in about 10 years ago, I made the conscious decision to turn it all off because I was like, there's not a lot of times I get on there and I'm super stoked. Most of the time it's, oh yeah, that, that day, that looked really fun. And those are my, I mean, it just was never good for me. And I think that social media, we, we were just over in Spain for two weeks and you'd go to dinner and you know, you'd be in the, the major downtown and everybody's eating outside. Yeah. You could look down a hundred yards down the thing and not a single human being was on their phones. You go to America, you guys go to dinner tonight, just look down, look around the restaurant and see how many couples are on their phones. See how many you're on date night with your wife and you look over at a guy and he's literally on his phone the entire night. Yeah. It, it's to me, it it's, and I'm such a relationship guy and I love people so much that it's, it's always crazy to see how much of life is now being sucked out of actual one-on-one interactions with human beings because of social media. Yeah. And it's, to me, I think that's, it's going to be, I mean, I, I mean, Utah is just passing laws right now against social media. I mean, I think the science and everything else behind it is coming out that it's, it's not good for, for kids. Yeah, no, I agree. I think one of the most dangerous parts about social media for me in particular is that it's almost entirely subconscious. Like there's, there's very little conscious effort that goes into deciding to get on social media and yeah. to scroll through social media. It's like, it's, and all of a sudden, two hours, your, then two hours of your life is gone and you're like, oh my gosh. I exactly. Exactly. I think that, dude, that's, yeah, no, that's no. good. When I took it off my phones, it literally was, you'd wake up in the morning, grab your phone on the side of the bed and start flipping through your thing. And I, that's, and then before you went to bed at night, you'd spend, you'd turn it on and all of a sudden, two hours later, you're, and you could have been talking to your wife, doing something else with your wife to do. I mean, there's a million different <laughs> things you could have been doing besides exactly. two hours of, and you don't even realize it. And you that's don't realize the, it. that's the scariest part is like, I'll, I'll, I have friends and reps and even me, sometimes they pull up on their phone, click on Instagram and then they immediately exit it. And it's like, why'd you open it? It's like, I don't know, like force a habit. No, but if, that's if, terrifying. But Zach, if you wanted to say, I mean, advice, it's, I, I hate social media. If kids could just go live their lives and have human interactions and all that other stuff. And then perseverance, I think is, I mean, there's a million quotes about perseverance, but you can be the smartest guy in the whole world. You can be the most accomplished guy. If you're not, if you don't have perseverance that, that you can be the dumbest guy in the world. You can be a Dave Hunter. And if you persevere and you're willing to work your guts out, you, you overcome a lot of people that are a lot smarter than you. You overcome a lot of people that have better ideas than you. I mean, perseverance is really the, the difference in, mm. in successful and not successful. Everybody in the world has a great idea, but not everybody in the world has the guts to go spend 25 hours a day for 15 years to build something. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I think that's like, so kids have to learn again, one of the things, Jill and I, and this was from my mom, hard Hard is just hard. hard. won't kill you. Hard is just hard. And she had a bunch of different variations of that saying. But one of the things that we really wanted to instill in our kids was hard work won't kill you. And if you can learn how to work hard without complaint, you can do anything in this life. So that is a big, big thing. It's trying to get kids to work without complaint and actually enjoying manual labor. If I lose everything tomorrow, I could be perfectly happy being a lawnmower the rest of my life. Just I'd have a business up and going in a week. I'd have 50 lawns. I'd put on my headphones and go mow lawns. I, I, I mean, I've never had a problem with work, which I think the reason, the reason perseverance and that whole concept is so important and empower, empowering is because that applies to anybody, not just the people who are naturally gifted out the gates, not the people who are just smart out the gates, not the people with the right circumstances growing up. That applies to anybody. If you can just go find something and persevere long enough, success follows whatever success may be to you. It follows. So no matter what, that's gold. if you're consistently persistent, you will accomplish what, and hopefully you're trying to accomplish something good because if you're consistently persistent and trying to do something not good, not good, you're going to, you will accomplish it. Yeah. A hundred percent. That's, that's gold. And then, so along with perseverance and perseverance is one of those things where sometimes it starts slow and compounds over time. In my experience, like perseverance doesn't pay off, doesn't pay off, doesn't pay off, doesn't pay off. Then all of a sudden it's like, boom, it blows up. Um, like your, your inputs now are showing on the flip, you're getting the rewards from it. My question for you is in your journey and everything like that, 
I'm assuming there's things that you've done consistently that you're very apparent with and you're, you're aware of and your like habits or rituals that you've done forever. What would you say are the most valuable that maybe you've done at certain phases or you've always done that are like the most valuable things you do on a consistent basis? I, I mean, as part of your question, the word, but consistency, that was really, and for sure, I'm 53 years old now and I've, I'm for sure more on the tail end of my career than the beginning of my career. Mm. And that consistency and perseverance and everything that was went into the beginning of the career pays off now where I, and this, this again goes against some of the mentality of success. Success to me is not waking up at five in the morning and, and, you know, having a very regimented day that to me is not success anymore. That's how it was 25 years ago. So my idea of success has actually changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now it's like to wake up, go get my chai tea latte, read the news, you know, yeah. have a, have a little morning, hang out with my wife. Now, you know, a lot of the kids are out of the house. We can make breakfast together. It's, it's a different picture of success for me now. And it's, I actually enjoy it more because back then it was a lot of work. Like, and I yeah. never minded, never minded work. Yeah. But there's also a different part of life. I'm not going to be the guy when I'm 85 years old. I'm the legendary guy that shows up at the office at six in the morning and leaves at nine o'clock at night every day. That's not, there won't be books written about that, about me. <laughs> I mean, my idea of success is, and again, it's an old saying, it, the success is doing whatever you want with whoever you want, whenever you want. And that is truly my definition of success. And that's, I'm not going to, I'm not going to live a really, really regimented life as far as I can help it. There could be a time when I have to go back and start working at six in the morning again, and I will have no problem doing that. But if I can at all help it, Mm -hmm. my idea of success now is going over and getting the grandkids and taking them to breakfast and hanging out with my daughter and taking a two hour lunch and and not being as regimented. That's kind of my idea of success. Well, I think that that is equally as powerful as you saying that your, your idea of success has changed because you, you had to do something to get to the point where your success can be that. And you're not just a deadbeat. Yeah. You have so much going for you. That is from all of the work you've put in to be able to have the freedom, which is true success, having the freedom to do what you want, when you want with who you want because of like the work. Yeah, that you And put now, in. now accomplishing for me is not, related to money. I mean, sometimes there's benefits of what I'm accomplishing. There might be money at the end of that rainbow, but for me, it's a completely different feeling of what I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah. We're, we're building a, we have a ranch down in Manti, Utah, and that's becoming one of my obsessions. We have some cows we got, I mean, I want to build this family gathering spot that's right on this lake. And it's so that, that for me is something that's becoming a real obsessive, obsessive, passion for me right now. So where did you develop, like, this is kind of off topic. And one thing I've noticed with people is they struggle when they're in this regimented, crazy, like production equals success, money equals success. Like that, that mentality, they have a really hard time moving on from it. And you'll see with professional athletes when they get out, like they lose all their confidence, they lose their drive. They don't really go redefine success. I honestly success. don't know how a, somebody can retire at 30 with all that money. I mean, that, that to me would just be a problem. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, older and wiser now. So how do you change your, how, how did you develop naturally to be able to go and change your view on success and be able to go and attach to something else like the ranch? Cause 20 years ago, you would not have been passionate about a ranch for no. a family gathering No, and people struggle going with the seasons and kind of moving on yep. from things. How did, how did you develop that? It, it really is just something inside of me just started changing of being, you know, of, cause I was that guy. I was the guy that woke up at four, five 30 every day. Yeah. And got to the office. I mean, when I first started my career, there was a wall that was probably a 10 by 10 wall in my office. And back then we didn't have the internet and we didn't, I mean, you'd have to go down to the county recorder's office and take out these big giant leather bound books, open them up. And that was the plat of a block of Provo. So I had every block of Provo taped on this wall. And every single morning I'd put on a nice pair of jeans, a white button down shirt, because I knew I'd be knocking doors that day. And I'd highlight Every project that could be a possible project like that house is sits on a big enough piece of land that I could tear it down and build some condos. So I'd highlight it in yellow, get out my whole list. And then I'd have my black church shoes on my white button down shirt. And I'd go knock on doors and say, Hey, I'm Dave Hunter. And I, I already look young when I was 22, I must've looked like a child, <laughs> but I'm like, I want to buy your house. And they'd be like, uh, it's not our house. The landlord's in California. So I called the landlord and 
And that, but it was regimented every single day. I, I'm going to identify projects in the morning, knock doors in the afternoon. I'm, I mean, it was, it's amazing. It was completely regimented and not that I wasn't super, super, super happy, but it's just a different season of my life right now for and sure. Being completely regimented is I'm actually trying to get away from that a little bit. And I know that you life kind of slips by if you don't have a lot of plans, you know, if your days aren't planned and everything, but for right now, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. That's a, that's really cool. And I think a lot of people, I think that's a struggle of a lot of people, which is freaking cool, dude. It's almost been an hour. Time yep. flies by every time I want to be respectful of everybody's time. Again, I freaking love you. I appreciate you for coming out and, and kind of to wrap it up. My last, my last question, I do it with almost every guest we bring on the name of the podcast is today's the day. The name of the show is today's the day. The purpose of that is because when I was probably 16, 17, a lot of things played into it just by seeing how people lived and like meeting the coolest people you included, hanging out, spending so much time with you. But then a quote really stuck out to me that in essence m- means like all you really have is right now. So I coined the term today's the day. And I've always said that since high school, like today's the day yesterday, it's already done tomorrow. You have no idea if it's coming so on and so forth. So living in the moment. And I think that's kind of like the secret. I think if you can approach every moment that way, not only will you go and get more out of life in all facets of the word, you're going to go get more out of your relationships, out of your business, out of your work, out of everything that you do. Um, but you're also going to be way more fulfilled and present, which I think is a really, really kind of forgotten art form. Being present is very forgotten in my opinion right now. Um, so we we're very aware of who we bring on and that's very important is making sure we bring people on who kind of live by today's the day, whether they realize it or not. And you've absolutely done that. You've been one of the best examples of it probably in my life, actually. Um, no, and Zach, and I love exactly what you just said, because that starting out the career with the wife and kids and all this, you, I don't care who you are. If you're a driven, successful entrepreneur, you're not always going to be present. You're going to be sitting at dinner thinking about tomorrow. You're going to be thinking <laughs> yeah. about, dude, that bank meeting is tomorrow. And I got to meet with the attorneys tomorrow. And I got to do this and I got to do that. And your kids are sitting there wanting your time, but you can't be present because you really have the stress of the world on your shoulders for a long period of your life. And that's, so I really have been actually consciously, like I, Jill has made me do some mindfulness classes and some wellness classes and all these things to actually, it's something, it's a muscle I'm trying to exercise right now is being completely and totally present. Mm. Like when we're sitting there with the kids, I'm not thinking about my bank meeting I have tomorrow. Cause I'm, we're still really active. I mean, we're really active in the real estate stuff still. I mean, we're, we've got We've got hundreds of millions of dollars of projects going right now, but it's not completely and totally consuming where I'm not willing to listen to my granddaughter babble for 20 minutes because I'm thinking about something else. I'm really trying to focus on the present and it's actually giving me a lot of satisfaction in life of not worrying about yesterday and not worrying about tomorrow. I'm sitting here with Zach Anderson talking about old dumb stories and (laughs) I have, I'm not worried about what I'm going to go do in 20 minutes. There you have it, baby. Today's the day. Dave, I freaking love you, man. That was amazing. I appreciate you. We'll definitely be doing a part two for everybody that tuned in. Thank you guys so much. Till next time. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Um, as always, it was a blast for me. I hope you got something out of this. If you got something out of this video of value, share this with a friend and please go show your love. We're on all streaming platforms, including YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Any ratings, comments, likes, shares, they go a very long way and they make it so I can keep doing these things for you and I would appreciate it greatly. So please go share with a friend. Until next time.